0: You're listening to Crossing Tape, a true crime podcast hosted by a real therapist. Please note that this podcast is separate from my professional work as a licensed mental health therapist, and it is solely something that I just do in my free time as a hobby. All right, let's jump into our next episode. Hello and welcome back to Crossing Tape. I'm your host, Mallory, and I am so glad that you guys have decided to come back and listen to me again this week. The the support that I have been receiving has been phenomenal, and I am just so thankful and so grateful. As I mentioned in my last episode, I am still traveling. Right now, I'm actually in a hotel in the place that our case takes place in, and I did that intentionally. So if you hear Um, some background noises. I will try to edit them out as much as possible, but this is a hotel. It is the middle of the day. People are coming and going, cars are driving by. So I'm sorry if there's distracting background noises, I will do my best to edit those out. But if I can't edit everything out, I do apologize. So I want you to take a moment to think back to your early adulthood. And if you're young, I want you to imagine what you hope for in your early adulthood. I want us to think back or imagine being 23 years old and on your own for the first time. I want you to imagine or think back to the feeling of having your own apartment that you didn't need a roommate for. I want you to imagine that the apartment is in a small, quaint, yet vibrant town that has stood for over 350 years. I want you to imagine that you're in school pursuing a passion that you love and that you have a group of friends that makes life feel full. I want you to imagine or remember what it felt like for your future to feel full and incandescent and completely your own because that is what our story starts as today. Our story takes us to a small, quaint city in the Northeast, in New England, where two brilliant futures were cut short by human cruelty. This is the story of Laura Kempton and of Tammy Little. In 1981, Laura Kempton was a 23-year-old cosmetology student living in a charming apartment in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is where I am at today as I'm recording this. She was described as, quote, outgoing, social, and a free spirit, unquote. Laura's apartment, located at 20 Chapel Street, was once a large house built in 1900. uh, 1900, But when our story takes place, it had actually been divided into three floors of smaller apartments. You can see a picture of the exterior of the building as it stands today on our Instagram. And actually, most of the places that I mentioned today you will be able to see on our Instagram because I was able to go to the locations and look up where they were and go to, to what is standing there today in 2023. So you're able to pop over to at Crossing Tape Pod and see the pictures as I talk about them in today's episode. Laura lived alone on the first floor in the apartment building at the back of the building in unit number two. The location of her apartment was ideal for any 23-year-old looking to spend time with friends out and about as it was within easy steps of bars, restaurants, shops, amazing coffee shops. So while downtown Portsmouth is Definitely peak quaint New England. Many restaurants turn to clubs after like 9 p.m. on the weekdays, and it seemed like this was also the case back in 1981. In fact, the night our story takes place, Laura was out on the town with her friend at a club enjoying the oncoming just March of Autumn. So on Saturday, September 26th, 1981, Laura was ready to celebrate the weekend with her friend and seemingly casual sexual partner jr now not much is known about jr just that he and laura were friends and they enjoyed going out together and it appears that they were casual sexual partners i I couldn't get much more information aside from this they weren't dating though none of the sources ever linked them together as like a long-term relationship so i'm guessing this is probably around like a like a friends with benefits type thing that evening they opted to go out to a dance um, at a local club called the riverside And I I wasn't able to find where the Riverside is today in 2023. Couldn't find an address, Um, but it was somewhere on Market Street, which is only about a two to five minute walk from Laura's apartment. But for whatever reason, they decided to take JR's car that night. So Jr. and Laura spent all night at the Riverside. They were dancing and having a great time until the club turned on the blaring lights and booted all the revelry out into the streets about one-ish in the the morning. Laura and Jr. drove the three blocks back to her house on Chapel Street. uh, And there's a map on our Instagram to kind of show all these places. Around 1.30 that morning on now Sunday, September 27th. Laura dropped off some of her belongings and then they uh, left again to go grab some food as you do after a night of drinking and dancing. Pizza never tastes better than on these kind of nights. And I'm not sure what they went to grab out to eat, but they did return to her apartment around 3 a.m. So again, 3 a.m. the morning of Sunday the 27th. Upon returning home, Laura asked Jr. to check all of the doors before they went to bed, which he did. So according to Jr. He and Laura had sex multiple times over the course of the night and the next morning. He reported that the last time they had sex was around 8 a.m. on Sunday, the 27th, and they did not use any physical protections such as condoms. They got ready and headed out for breakfast before Laura's shift. So before they left her house, Laura grabbed some cash from an envelope and left the rest on her table. She locked the door as they left and they headed to Goldie's Deli uh, for some food. And this would be the last time J.R. would ever see Laura again. After breakfast with J.R., bubbly and bright Laura went to work her shift from 10 to 7 p.m. Once off work, Laura headed back home to wait for her friend Karen to arrive so they could go out together that evening. Karen arrived around 9 p.m. Once they were both ready, they went out for another night on the town. Laura and Karen walked to Luca's restaurant to watch live music and enjoy some food and drinks. Laura was allegedly dating the band's saxophonist and had asked him to come back to her apartment with her that night, which he did not do. And I don't have any more information around around this. This was just mentioned in some of the case uh, material. So she asked him to come back with her and he said no. Unbothered, Laura and Karen stayed at Luca's dancing and chatting with guys, enjoying the evening, the music, the food, and the drinks, and they didn't stop until they closed down the bar at again around 1am. Walking back to her apartment on Chapel Street, Laura asked Karen if she'd stayed the night with her. Karen said no because she had to work early the next day, so Laura instead asked if Karen would go get a cup of coffee with her like that night instead. And again, Karen declined and left Laura on the steps of her apartment. The next morning, this is now Monday, September 28th, 1981, a Portsmouth police officer pulled up to 20 Chapel street. He checked the address to confirm that he was at the right spot. And he checked the name of the recipient on the court summons. He was there to serve Laura Kempton. Laura had unpaid parking tickets and was being summoned to court to pay them. The officer made note of the time, 9:25 a.m., and proceeded to enter the apartment building and walk down the first floor hall to number 2. Curiously, he noticed that a panel in the door had been broken and was missing, and the gaping hole was only partially covered by a thin piece of metal. Noting this is strange, the officer peeked through the remaining part of the panel that wasn't covered about an inch. And as he peered in, he saw a heap of blankets on the floor. And when he looked closer, he saw two legs that were bound together peeking out from the blankets. He then looked towards the walls and saw blood splatter across the far back wall. He was sh- shocked, obviously, and immediately called for backup. Trigger warning, a bit graphic, Uh, this next section is a bit graphic, so skip ahead about 30 seconds, most likely, um, if you don't want to hear it. So Laura was found, once more police arrived, more detectives arrived, crime scene investigators arrived, she was found underneath a pile of blankets, bedding, her mattress, and box spring. So everything had been piled on top of her her ankles had been tied with a white cord from an electric blanket that she liked to use in the colder months she was naked and lying on her back with a gray telephone cord wrapped around her neck and blood was pooled beneath her upper body a piece of door molding was found underneath her body as well and they think it you know is the door molding from the from the piece of the door that had been broken Upon examination, the medical examiner reported that her cause of death was, quote, terminal pulmonary edema, unquote, which is, I googled it, and from what I found, it's excessive fluid in your lungs because of pressure on your heart. Contributed by, and this is from the medical examiner, it was contributed by a, quote, severe beating about the head and laura's head had been severely beaten it had been hit repeatedly by a large blunt object so badly that her skull had caved inward she also suffered cuts to her lips and jaw from being beaten with a fist her brain had multiple lacerations which are cuts or tears and contusions which are also bruises Further examination also showed the presence of semen and seminal fluid. It also appeared that Laura had been sexually assaulted before she had been killed. Police were able to gather a lot of evidence from Laura's apartment, a lot of physical evidence. They gathered the phone cord that was wrapped around her neck. They grabbed uh, the cord that was wrapped around her ankles, and they also grabbed this metal piece from a mailbox in the hallway that it looked like was used to pry open the panel in the door and the door we will have a picture on, on Instagram. It's kind of hard to tell from the old picture. You know, this is a picture from the eighties. So it's kind of hard to tell, but it's essentially one of those doors. um, It's an older type of door and they have like the four kind of rectangular panels in the door. It makes it kind of look well nowadays when they, when they make doors look like that, it's to mimic this old, style of door, this kind of antique style of door and so they found this metal piece that had been ripped off of the mailbox in the hallway and if you can hang with me here to envision this it's one of those mailboxes that (laughs) like your grandparents might have where it's a metal box that kind of flips up and then there's two hooks um, on the bottom of the mailbox where papers would go so when people used to get newspapers every day the paper would fit really snugly in these two little metal hooks on the bottom of the of the mailbox and so they found a hook from the mailbox in the hallway that had pried open one of the panels in this door which had then been covered by that thin sheet of metal which then the officer was able to look through on the bottom and and see everything so they were able to to gather a lot of physical evidence from the apartment and even though dna testing was still in its infancy Thank God the police had foresight to take samples from Laura's body, as well from a cigarette butt that they found near her body. They also took a large wine bottle that they found near her body, which they believed to be the murder weapon after testing the bottle for blood, which confirmed the presence of type A blood, which was uh, Laura's blood. And um, the wine bottle was not empty. It was full, which is why it was so heavy, which is why the damage to her skull was so severe. Uh, Further testing of the DNA samples in 1981 were only able to go so far as to detect spermatozoa and seminal material, but they were unable to pull any useful DNA information because it was 1981 and this is like ground zero for DNA research. So luckily the police took samples, even though at the time they weren't even sure that DNA testing was even going to go anywhere. So thank God they had the foresight to take samples. Ultimately, however, uh, the police were really only able to go on the time of death, which was between 1 a.m. and 925 a.m. from reports from neighbors in the building. Because again, remember, DNA is like almost non-existent in 1981 and they have physical evidence, but they don't really have anything that gives them any indication of of a suspect. And so they started relying on the neighbors. So they started asking neighbors for some information and two neighbors saw that Laura's door had appeared tampered with in the early hours of September 28th, but there was music playing within the apartment. So neither neighbor went to investigate Arthur, who was a houseless man who would often sleep in the apartment hallways and stairwells reported that on the night of September 27th, he saw a female and a male arguing on the street outside of 20 chapel street. And he recognized Laura and was able to identify the man um, from a police, from a police lineup as John Shea. And there's like no other information or mention of John Shea. So I have no idea who this person is, but um, Arthur was able to, to identify him. And so Arthur left because he, he saw them arguing. He left because he was worried about trying to like sneak in when there was a domestic dispute because he didn't want the police to be called and then. You know he gets kind of caught in the cross hairs there, and so he, Arthur actually comes back later into the into the morning of September twenty eighth. Um, he wasn't really sure when, but he was pretty sure that he had only been asleep in the hallway of the second floor when he heard a loud crash below, and again he left quickly, fearing the police would be called. That next morning he actually started hearing whispers of Laura's murder, and he was like, okay, I have to come forward to police about what what I saw. And so while police were appreciative of Arthur's account, he didn't have a great time frame for them. Also, he said that he saw a female and a male arguing on September 27th. And from other accounts like Karen's, we know that Laura didn't get home until the morning of the 28th. And that could just be semantics, but police were like, This is great, but also ultimately kind of unhelpful. And so they went to, to one of Laura's neighbors who was directly across the hall. And (laughs) this neighbor is kind of infuriating, honestly. So his name is Daniel. And he reported that he had come home at 2am the morning of the, of the 28th. And he noticed that her door was broken and he immediately thought that someone had broken in. Like that was his first thought when he saw, her door broken and he was like, Oh, someone must have broken in. (laughs) But he doesn't do anything about it, okay? So he knows the door was broken, Amelia thinks that someone had broken in, and now he can hear somebody quote unquote playing with the metal panel inside. Okay? So assuming that someone he says, he says, Well I just assumed that Laura was simply fixing the door, so he didn't go investigate. He did nothing. He went into his own apartment checked his own apartment for break-ins and then went to sleep and you're probably like this guy is sus as hell and the police thought the exact same thing they were like this is really weird not only because like you knew laura lived alone but also because your immediate reaction was that something like her apartment had been broken into you even went to go so far as like check your own home for signs of invasion. And yet you did nothing. You didn't check on her. You didn't call out to her. You didn't call her. You did nothing. And so police thought this was like super suspicious. So they actually requested that Daniel take a polygraph and he refused. He said, no, I'm not taking a polygraph, but because police were like, there's nothing else tying him to this. They ultimately couldn't force him to take a polygraph because a sign from this really weird, recounting there was nothing else that police had to go on to connect him to the crime scene so they couldn't force him so he did not he didn't take a polygraph they are like you're w- weird as hell and this is so strange but they can't uh, they couldn't force it on him and he'll actually come up later in our in our story so at this point police were pretty suspicious of Daniel as well as John Shea, who again I have zero information on it the case ended up going cold very very quickly They didn't have clear evidence connecting either Daniel or John Shea to the crime. And with the lack of DNA testing, there wasn't much more that they could do. The city of Portsmouth was shocked and scared as no answers or resolution came. In fact, a small group of Quakers actually formed the Dover Friends meeting to keep Portsmouth safe by walking in pairs with police whistles and watching for anything that might be amiss. And one newspaper article that I found about the Dover Friends meeting had a person in that meeting as quoted as saying, we're going to stand by our principles. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Essentially, like, we're going to stand by our principles of nonviolence. So if we are harmed, we are not going to enact violence against a person who is harming us, but we want to keep others safe. So we're going to be the eyes, you know, they wanted to be the eyes of Portsmouth, which amazing, amazing. Police also had patrols roaming constantly up and down the narrow streets for months after Laura's killing. And yet, Time did nothing to soothe people's fears because just over a year later, on October 19th, 1982, the beaten body of Tammy Little was found in her apartment at 315 Maplewood Avenue in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Tammy's mother hadn't heard from her in a few days and went by her apartment to check in on her, finding the badly beaten body of her daughter. Newspaper reports that she had been, quote, beaten, beyond recognition, unquote. Tammy was also a student at Portsmouth Beauty School along with Laura, and their apartments were only a mile apart. Little is really known about Tammy's case. I mean, Laura's case got so much coverage. There is so much information on it. And Tammy's is is often a footnote in Laura's articles, which I don't know if that was intentional. I don't know if the family requested that. I don't. I have no idea, so I'm not gonna make any judgments about that. But so little is known about Tammy's case, except for its seemingly obvious connection to Laura's. It's unclear if police also took DNA samples from Tammy's apartment, or if she was also sexually assaulted. But just like Laura's case, Tammy's case would go cold very quickly. In 1986, police thought that they had a viable suspect for the killings of Laura and Tammy. Ronald Spiwak, I think I'm, I'm probably butchering that, A 27-year-old man from Massachusetts was arrested and detained for a psych evaluation after killing two Boston-area sex workers. While he was arrested for the killings of these sex workers, he was also suspected of more murders in Maine. And at first, police thought he might be connected to Laura and Tammy, but ultimately, he was ruled out as suspect as the MO of his crimes did not match what happened to Laura and Tammy. So years go by. Verse 5 then 10, then 15. The police are no closer to solving the murders as they were in 1981. In 1997, the police department upped the reward to $10,000, which is about $33,000 $33, $33, in 2023, for information leading to an arrest of the person who killed Laura and Tammy. Regardless of this up in price for the reward, no one came forward, and the cases remained cold. A year later, in 1998, police again found a weak connection between a man on trial for killing a woman in Florida, and they thought this might be connected to Laura and Tammy, and once again, it didn't pan out to anything. And as the new millennia rolled in, police decided to try to up the reward once again in 2000 to $20,000, which is about uh, $67,000 today in 2023. And again, nothing came of it. So finally, a few months later, in July of 2000, police felt DNA testing had improved enough that they were open to trying to test some of the samples found on Laura's body. They submitted a scraping from Laura's thigh, as well as a sample from the gray phone cord that was found around her neck. The sample from the cord was not enough to gain a profile from. However, the sample from Laura's body was, and the lab was able to create a partial male DNA profile, only six alleles from the sample. And while not a full profile, it was more information than the police had received in 19 years. A year later, police submitted samples again to the Maine State Police Crime Lab. They submitted the samples from Laura's body, as well as from the cigarette butt found in her apartment. From the sample taken from her body, the lab was able to identify a full male DNA profile, which was huge. And they were only able to pull a partial profile from the cigarette butt. However, that partial profile matched where it could, the full profile pulled from her body. And when the lab compared these DNA profiles to the partial one compiled from the scrapings from Laura's thigh a year earlier, they were a match. And this meant that whoever had sexually assaulted her was also the same person who had tied the cord around her neck and killed her. This was a huge breakthrough for the police, and they immediately worked to clear old suspects. First, they tested JR's DNA against the profile as he had claimed that he and Laura had had consensual sex the morning before she died. His DNA did not match the profile, so he was cleared as a suspect. Police then tested John Shea, the man that had been seen arguing with Laura the night that she died, and his DNA was not a match either. Finally, police tested Daniel's DNA, the weird neighbor, and he was also not a match. So even though he didn't take a polygraph or he refused a polygraph, turns out ultimately he wasn't a match to the DNA that they found. So this seemingly puzzle solving piece of evidence fell short once more. They uploaded the DNA profile to as many databases as possible. They uploaded it to the combined DNA index system, AKA CODIS, various crime scene labs across the country, and even Interpol. They also continued to test the profile against anyone that they had even the like slight concern or consideration that might be connected to the murders. And eventually, the police cleared hundreds of potential suspects, and yet no one was a match. 15 years later, from the time the police got their Full DNA profile, in 2016, Portsmouth police decided to try to utilize genetic technology to try to isolate genetic markers in the DNA that could help police. The only result from this testing was that the sample came from a man with African-American heritage. Nothing else more specific could be learned from the sample, so again, the case went cold. Six years later, in 2022, Portsmouth police decided to use public genetic genealogy databases to run the dna from laura's crime scene in hopes of finding a relative of the perpetrator because at this point uploading it to different databases had had no results nothing had been coming through so they thought you know what everybody is doing genetic testing right now everybody is learning about their ancestry let's utilize this technology to find the person who did this finally after 41 years of searching Police found the killer of Laura Kempton. 41 years earlier, in the early morning hours of September 28, 1981, Ronnie James Lee entered into the apartment building at 20 Chapel Street after Laura had arrived home. He broke off a piece of a metal mailbox where the paper would sit and used this to pry off the panel in the door, allowing him access to the apartment was able to reach in and unlock the door from the inside. Ronnie was not new to breaking into people's homes. In fact, he was convicted of four residential burglaries and one commercial burglary in Portsmouth by 1983. As Ronnie gained access to Laura's home, he covered the hole in the door with a thin sheet of metal to ensure that passersby could not see into the apartment. He then proceeded to assault and end Laura's life while also taking some belongings and the envelope of money that she had had on her table. In 1987, Ronnie was convicted of burglary and attempted sexual assault of a woman in Keene, Maine. He had entered her home and was attempting to assault the woman in her bed when she woke up, screamed and her roommate came in and scared him off. He fled, but was caught and charged, and spent three years in prison and he was released in 1990. And by 1995, he had died from a cocaine overdose. The attorney general of New Hampshire made a statement following this discovery that if Ronnie Lee was alive today, he would be charged with first degree murder. While the families do not have justice in the way that they might prefer to see it, like a murderer behind bars, they do have closure and they do have answers. Like I said earlier, it's unclear if the police took DNA from Tammy Little and if they were also going to be testing it against Lee's DNA profile. While we have answers for Laura, Tammy's case is still technically unsolved. If you know anything about the assault and death of Tammy Little, please call the New Hampshire State Police Major Crime Unit at 603-271-2663, or you can submit a tip anonymously to Seacoast Crime Stoppers at 603-431-1199. You can leave virtual flowers at Laura's grave through the Find a Grave link in the show notes as her final resting place is unknown. You can send flowers to Tammy's grave through the link in the show notes, or you can donate to our flower fund, which goes directly to sending flowers to the victim's graves, since it's pretty expensive and not everyone can spend $100 on flower delivery. I totally get it. So we have set up a victim's flower fund for that purpose, so that you can donate what you can, and that goes to putting the flowers on the graves. And I will actually be going to Tammy's grave in person because I am in the area, so I will be hand-delivering flowers to her grave probably the weekend that this comes out if Hurricane Lee doesn't (laughs) doesn't mess up my plans. Laura's case and Tammy's case have gone unsolved for 41 years, and with the help of DNA testing and genetic genealogy testing, we were able to get answers for Laura's family, and it is my deep hope that Tammy Little's family also gets answers very soon thank you everyone for listening. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your understanding as I move all over the country and have a different recording setups every single time I record. So thank you for your graciousness in allowing me to be imperfect in this new endeavor of mine. If you would like a free and easy way to support the show, I would love a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps boost the show, helps the algorithm know that this is a show that people might want to listen to. So I would really appreciate it if you would pop over to whatever listening platform and give us a rating or a review. Please share the show with others that you think might like it so we can keep getting the word out there. I really appreciate all the support you guys have already shown me. And I look forward to recording back home very soon in my own controlled space. Stay safe. And I will talk to you guys soon. If you'd like to show your support for me and the podcast, please head over to Instagram and give us a follow. It's just at crossing tape pod. And if you would like to submit a request for me to cover a story, you can do so through the link in my bio on Instagram until next time.